It was, it was a privilege to be with the youth and to serve with them. Our scripture this morning is from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. The son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The grass withers and the flower, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider, as we consider this your word, as we consider uh, the words of Paul before us, this in some ways challenging passage, we pray, Lord, that you would come that you would meet us in our need, that you would clear our minds and hearts for the word that you have prepared for us this morning. Lord, be with the words of my mouth that I might speak your truth and, and deliver up the gospel as Paul has delivered it to us here in this passage. In Galatians. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start by saying it's, it's been a great privilege to be youth director and be on staff here at Cornerstone uh, and be ministering to your youth. We've had a lot of fun the last year, some fun, maybe. Um, one, of the, one of the things, though, for all, for all of the wonderful experiences, um, I, do, I do want to confess something that's, that's been a bit more challenging ministering to your youth. And that, that's been this. The youth have had great fun at, at my expense <laughs> over the fact that I'm Canadian. <laughs> and, and I don't really feel like this should be held against me. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. I'm, but I've had to endure all manner of insult over my nationality. Um, some of you are actually just finding that out for the first time, and you're like, it's, just, it's explaining everything. But 
now, if, if I use words strangely here and there, or apologize, say sorry, uh, <laughs> you, will, you will, I trust, forgive me. But the irony is not lost on me, that being a Canadian, um, as, as we sit on the eve of July 4th, that I get to deliver up God's word. And so for, for a moment, as I was considering what I was, would preach on, I, I thought about possibly preaching the perspective of one who has remained loyal to the crown, one who has not, in fact, departed. <laughs> but, but, uh, but again, I will, I will spare you. I, I want to escape to Charlotte with my life, so we will not cover such dangerous territory. Um, but in all seriousness, as we, as we consider the July 4th celebration, one of the things that, that I as a Canadian get to enjoy about your national celebration is, is the origin story. The, the power that the origin story plays in the collective American consciousness. I think it's something that we don't necessarily have an equivalent to in Canada. It's the power of an origin story, the drama through which this nation was born. Origin stories have power. They have the power to draw us together and to inform who it is that we are now. We have, we have personal origin stories. And in the church, we might call these testimonies, more, more likely than, than origin stories. But stories of something that, that God has done that, that give light and shed light on who we are now. These stories are all around us. They're, on a, they're all around us on a personal level, on a cultural level, on a national level, we, we get to enjoy these types of stories. And here in Galatians, Paul is retelling a story that would have carried that kind of power, that kind of weight in the minds of his audience. He's retelling a Jewish origin story. He's telling an old story, a story that, that comes to us in the early pages of Scripture. In Genesis 16, story of Isaac and Ishmael. And Paul, Paul turns to this story because he knows his audience. You'll remember from, from previous weeks that the Galatians were very steeped in the traditions of the Old Testament. They were very steeped in the practices that made up Old Testament worship. And so Paul, over the course of Galatians, has, has been taking them to task for their slavery to what he calls the elementary principles of the world in last week's passage. For the fact that they are enslaving people in practice, with practices that have been fulfilled in Christ, that have found their completion in the person and work of Christ. And so knowing that the Galatians would appeal to tradition, Paul Paul is about to take them to task for misreading their own tradition. He's about to retell their story. A story that they would have pointed to as an origin story that explained them as a people. But he's, he's about to, to put a new spin on it. He's about to retell it in a way they haven't heard it before. He's about to tell the way that this story of Isaac and Ishmael points to 
Christ, how it contains the gospel in its very text. He's about to tell them that they are indeed sons of Isaac. But they're not sons of Isaac because of the traditions, because of the ceremonies, because of circumcision. They're sons of Isaac. They're sons, as Paul calls them, sons of promise because of Jesus, because of the work that Jesus has accomplished. And so, as we enter this passage, as we enter this story, there are several things, several truths that I think Paul, gospel truths that I think Paul is leading us towards. I have three of them. First of all, I want to note in the story of Hagar and Ishmael, the impossibility of the problem. And second, I want to draw our attention to the strength of the promise. And third, I want us to reflect on the freedom that is secured. The impossibility of the problem, the strength of the promise, and the freedom that is secured. And so we begin. Let's, let's just recap for a moment what Paul has said. In a nutshell, in this passage, Paul presents two sons, one of promise, one of slavery, and two women, one a free woman and one a slave woman, Sarai and Hagar. And then Paul pulls a really mind-bending move on us, and he says that these women actually represent something else. They're actually an allegory. They represent two mountains. And he's not done there. Those two mountains represent two cities, the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. So, so what are we to do with this? What, what are we to do with this? Clear as mud? We can all go home? You know, let me, off, let me off the hook? No, I won't get off that easy. I think perhaps the best way for us to tackle this passage, because Paul, Paul is presuming a certain level of familiarity from his audience as to the details of the story, I think the best way for us to tackle this is to get right back into the text itself, back to the early moments of Genesis. The story of Hagar begins with a problem. It's a problem that's emerged for Abram and Sarai. You'll remember from your Bibles that in Genesis 12, Abram and Sarai have, have left their family. They've left their home. They're wandering. They've become refugees in a foreign land. And they've, they've done all this because God told them to. Because God has made them a promise. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that he will be a great nation that his offspring will number as the sands of the seashore, as the stars of heaven. And it's a wonderful promise. And so Abram and Sarai set out. But the road that they find is anything but easy. By the time between Genesis 12 and Genesis 16, where we meet Hagar, by the time we're introduced to Hagar, they've been chased out of Egypt. They've had to rescue their cousin Lot, who got himself involved with the wrong crowd in Sodom. 
They've managed to anger a variety of kings from surrounding nations and had to fight their way through all of it. And this is only the beginning of the problems that have formed for Abram and Sarai. The problems that formed because they were obedient to the promise of God. It's the only beginning. It's only the beginning. In Genesis 16, when Hagar is introduced, there's a more difficult, more challenging problem on their lap. Abram and Sarai are in some, something of an absurd situation. They have, the, they have the promises of God at their back. They have the promises that he will make them a great nation, that their offspring are going to populate the earth and bless the nations. And here they are in Genesis 16, childless. Not only are they childless, but Sarah's window of time to give birth to children is closing. She's grown old, and the Lord has done nothing. Now, if we step into the shoes of Abram and Sarah, this has to be something of a, a confusing, even, even embarrassing moment. They've made a commitment to a God who has not delivered on his promises. They, they have the promises of God, and God, God has not only told them once, but he's told them twice on two separate occasions that he will bless them. And yet here they are, childless. And what's more, according to, according to ancient Near Eastern custom, all of, all of their possessions, once they die, will belong to a servant. So they won't be a great nation, and their name will be forgotten. And so in the opening verses of Genesis 16, when we meet Hagar, you can almost hear the sadness, the disappointment, possibly even the anger in Sarai's voice when she turns to her husband Abram and says, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. God has prevented her. In other words, God has gone back on his word. Perhaps he's a, he's a liar, and Abram and Sarai have been duped. And so Sarai, trying to make the best of her circumstance, the best of a difficult situation, no, an impossible situation, the hard providence that God has given her, she turns to Abram and offers him Hagar. On a deep level, we, we understand Sarai's dilemma. Her response we understand it. She's being flexible. She's, she's adapting to a difficult situation. As far as she knows, perhaps God is not powerful enough. Perhaps there's a circumstance that God didn't foresee. And he won't be able to keep his promise after all. And so she's almost, she's almost offering God an out. Here's a, here's a plan B, Lord. Plan A didn't work, so, so here's Hagar. Take, take her, make Abram 
a great nation through her. And perhaps the promises aren't for me. Part of what makes Sarai's response so understandable is the fact that we've sat exactly where she has sat. We've sat and we've wondered whether the promises that God has made, whether he plans on ever keeping them. Have you asked, have you asked that question? I know, I know I have. These questions usually emerge when I come to, a, come to a realization of just how deep the problem goes. The problem of the brokenness of this world. If you've never, if you've never wondered if you've never wondered about whether God keeps his promises, let's just consider three promises, fairly standard promises that we would, we would hold on to through the gospel as it's given to us in Christ. Let's consider three. Christ promises us victory over the world, victory over the flesh, and victory over death. And, and we could take these in sequence. Victory over the world. I don't know about you, but... I, but I look around and I see the world going its way and not a whole lot of consequence. It pays no attention to God. Christ promises victory over flesh and all we have to do is look back at our weak. The flesh so often seems so strong. Christ promises victory over death and all we can really say is somebody Somebody should tell death because death doesn't seem to pay, be paying its defeat any, any mind. It's going strong at a rate of one per person. So where are the promises of God? Where do they stand? We stand with Sarah, Sarai and the question emerges. Is God faithful? Or has he gone back on his word? Or perhaps is he not powerful enough to accomplish what he promised? Perhaps God didn't foresee just how impossible the problem actually is. The first part of the gospel, coming to Christ, is the realization of just how impossible the problem really is. It's impossible for Sarai and the brokenness of her circumstance. It's impossible for us. It's not just, it's not just difficult. It's not that Sarai doesn't have enough willpower. The problem is impossible. Elderly women don't bear children. The problem is impossible, and I, I sometimes don't think we're clear enough on this. And how we talk about sin, the consequences of sin, just how, how deep it runs. I sort of brush past sin like it's an annoyance. It's, it's, it's a struggle that, that hangs out in our closet that nobody else knows about. It's, it's just this little thing that pesters me at my heels. The problem of sin 
throughout scripture is not a bad day at the office. The problem of sin is not that you, you stumbled. The problem of sin, the brokenness of sin is death. It's death. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses. Not you were stumbling, you're really struggling. Not any number of the euphemisms we like to talk about sin with. No, you were, you were dead. You flatlined. If they checked for a pulse, they pulled the sheet over your face, you were done. The problem of sin is death. We have, with Sarai, an impossible problem. A problem we can't fix. A problem the traditions of men, the power of the flesh, nothing that the Galatians or us could throw at the problem can fix it. Because it's an impossible problem. Sarai confronts the impossibility of her problem. She presents an answer, or a, a half answer. She says, take Hagar, take her. She will bear you a son. And perhaps that will be the way that God accomplishes his promises. Sarai grasps the problem, and she does as one will do. She despairs. But the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there for the, the impossible problem that we are tasked with meets the prevailing power of God's promise. The second, second point this morning. Paul highlights the language of promise for us this morning in Galatians. He says Isaac, he talks about Isaac, the son that comes to Sarai through the impossibility of her old age. He is the son of promise. So we know the story. The promise comes true. Isaac is born to Sarai, and God is proven faithful in the end. You see, we have an impossible problem. We live with the, the effects of the fall. But it doesn't, it doesn't end there. In Christ, it doesn't end there because God's promises prevail. I think, I think so often we, we have this odd relationship with God's promises because we, we oftentimes think they're a lot like our promises. Like God's just a bigger version of us. So the way we give promises is the way God gives promises, just better and bigger. That's not, that's not really the case. We have a very strained relationships relationship with our promises. Especially, especially in our day and age, talk, talk is very cheap. And, and when we make a promise, oftentimes it really, what it means is maybe if, if I have time, if I can, can get around to it. But, but God's relationship to his word is nothing like that. Is nothing like that. His relationship to his promises is nothing like our relationship to our promises. 
It's not, it's not arbitrary. It's not flippant. When God speaks, he accomplishes exactly what he sets out to do, what he sets forth in his promises. We, when we encounter God in Scripture, from the earliest pages of Genesis, he's speaking, and what he speaks becomes. It is accomplished immediately. No reservations. The power with which God speaks is not the power nor the truth with which we speak. When God speaks, his word is an extension of himself and he is good and therefore his word is good and it is true. And it takes effect with the power with which he utters it. His promises are completely different. The nature of a sinner is to be a promise breaker, to, to have broken covenant, which is another way of saying broken the promise, broken the, the bond between us and God. But God has never broken covenant. He's never broken covenant with us. You know, when, when God sets forth his promises, he sets them forth in power. He accomplishes exactly what he sets out to do. And that's what he does in Sarai's life. It's what he does in our life. He, he reaches into the womb of an elderly woman and brings forth life. He reaches into the hearts of a dead people, dead in trespasses, and brings forth life. And in his greatest moment of promise keeping, he reaches into the grave and brings forth his son to testify of the promise kept, the promise he has kept. We worship a God whose power, whose power in his promise is so true and so deep, there's nothing more certain than even the ground beneath us. The circumstance of Sarai's life, the circumstance of our hearts. I, I want us to reflect on that. We were dead in our trespasses, which means that every single one of us, every single one of us who's gathered in this place, it was a miracle. It was a miracle. It's God working the impossible. It's God bringing life where there is none. He accomplishes his purposes and he does so with power. The gospel is true. The gospel will go forth. It will prevail. Because God has promised it. Because his word is true and it will it will defy all odds, even the odds of death itself. Because his promise is strong. Paul in verse 28 of our passage says to us, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. We're children of the promises of God. We are secured. God has accomplished it. This morning as we gather, we testify to the fact that God has kept his 
promise to us. That he has provided the way. That he has sent his son. That he has taken our sin upon his shoulder. Carried it to the cross. That God has faced an impossible problem. And emerged victorious. The power is real. It is real. It is upon us. We are walking miracles in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This leads us to to our third and our final point. The the entire passage before us in Galatians, in Galatians 4, is pointing, Paul is pointing the Galatians and us to the freedom we enjoy. The freedom we enjoy because of this. Verse 31, he says, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So how is it? How is it that this promise secures our freedom? Well, I think the the best illustration of this was actually reflected on and, and, and gifted really to the youth last week. We on Tuesday, this was already mentioned, we we got to enter into a prayer meeting, and as, as Styles even reflected on so well, um, one of the staggering things was just how alive these widows, many of whom were, were in their 90s, very, very elderly, uh, many, of, many of their lives, in the midst of everything that was going on with them, in the midst of the trials and, and everything that had been taken away, just the, the joy. And it, it struck me, like, if, if you're an unbeliever and you, you witness that, you, these are widows. I mean, they've, they've lost the single most important beloved companion that God could gift someone this side of heaven and and beyond that even had lost tremendously and yet you couldn't get them to tell the tales of their affliction because all that they had time for was to profess the truth of the gospel what As an unbeliever, that's madness. It's madness. There's no way that anyone could lose as much as they they did and profess the glories of the God who gave that to them. The hardness of that. It's madness. Unless the one reason that they were there, that they gathered in that place and sang those praises and sang those songs unless that reason was strong enough, powerful enough, loving enough to overshadow in entirety the realities of their life, of their broken homes, of the neighborhoods that were falling apart. The strength of the promises of God, when they are that real to us, when they are that present to us, they have the power of absolute freedom. Free us from from every circumstance, from every affliction. Paul, Paul is clear. We will still experience affliction. Paul says, Paul says in verse 29, 
But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Paul is not making any bones about this. We will experience affliction. We will experience the consequences of sin. We with Sarai will mourn. But when the promises register with the power with which they are uttered through the God who has given them, they will overshadow everything can't help but be free. We can't help but sing in the face of death. Promises are real. They are true. They're truer than our affliction. They're truer than this present age. Paul in Galatians 4 quotes quotes a verse from, from Isaiah. Isaiah 54 this, this song that's, that's sandwiched in the middle of our text. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. In other words, this affliction, this, this present affliction that we, we got to witness firsthand in the life of of these widows. They will pass away. They will give way. The glories unimaginable that outstrip anything that we could imagine this side of heaven. And so, so we can sing. The way the, the widows sang, we'd sing of the promises of God. As, as we leave, as Emma and I depart a week from tomorrow, and I want to say this by way of concluding, we, we pray that the promises of God, as they are realized in the person and work of Jesus, that they would be rehearsed and relived and be reminded week after week and that every, every time they are, every time they are, that cares of this world would grow a little dimmer and the light of the kingdom to come the place to which we are going where the promises will be no longer promises but fulfilled where, where God will be found true and every man a liar we pray that would happen week after week until the time until we gather into that place in the courts of the Lord in the Jerusalem that is above as Paul calls it the heavenly city the place where we will reign with Christ for all eternity let's pray together Father we do confess that you're promise is strong it has been shown strong in the person and work of Jesus in the life we've been given in the testimony of his goodness of his love of his power Lord you accomplish your good purposes 
so we cling to that. Show us this day, even, even a little more, what it means to live in light of the promises that you have given, fulfilled in Jesus, awaiting consummation in the heavenly courts. May we fix our eyes upon that goal and unwavering. May we walk the path that you have set before us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.